This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, delegates, all to episode 8 of the Delegation Game. 
Last time a whole load of deaths darkened our doorway, with Georges Clemenceau, Kerensky, and perhaps even Kaim Weitzman kicking the bucket, all in the space of a single episode. You people are mad. This episode promises to contain less murder, but still an awful lot of conspiracy to commit murder, nonetheless. We have had a very productive week as well, as our alternative Treaty of Versailles continues to expand with several resolutions successfully passed in our voting booth. Where there has been success, though, there's also been an incredible amount of controversy. The Italians, it would seem, have left the building, as everyone's favourite meme-maker, Bonifacio Fidel, managed to get himself caught up in a grand conspiracy and was subsequently thrown in prison. As a protest, Vittorio Orlando made a statement to the press, bailed his comrade out of jail and returned home to Rome. Absolving himself of any association with his leader, apparently, Fidel has now thrown his lot in with the Zionist delegation, which would have been a much more effective gesture had its de facto leader, Kaim Weizmann, not vanished. Nobody has seen heads or tails of Weizmann in weeks, but it was the discovery of Alexander Kerensky's body in the River Seine, only a stone's throw away from the Hotel Zachary, that truly sent the doomsayers over the edge. The Big Three, which now consists of Woodrow Wilson, Lloyd George and Albert Clavel, supported by René Massigli, was feeling particularly gloomy at the end of last week's instalment, but in the meantime, they managed to make a critically important policy decision. The Allies, in league with the accredited German delegates, determined at some point last week to actually commit to a proper, organised campaign to crush Bolshevism in Russia. That's right, your vote passed. This firm decision was objected to by Lloyd George, and Woodrow Wilson wasn't so sure either. But in the mood of anti-Bolshevik opinion, which surged following the discovery of Kerensky's body, and the mysterious assassination of Clemenceau, which had yet to be cleared, the tired soldiers of Europe were apparently more willing than one may have expected to venture boldly into Russia's divided wastes. This time they'd be supported by a contingent of Germans. If a concerted invasion of Russia's Bolshevik centre was to take place, the Allies would definitely need the Germans' help. This act of coordinating an international military force comprised of enemies and allies demonstrated how seriously the world was taking the Bolshevik threat. But as a result of this initiative, we have an important task in store for all delegates today, rather than a brand new vote, so stay tuned for details on that. We have in fact had another new delegate sign up this week, but James, hi there James, how you doing? You've yet to send me the details of your avatar, so you'll have to wait till next week before you're factored into this game. Similarly, the delegate known as Lilithia, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, you've yet to send me your details either, so please do that soonish. And all being well, the two of you will be joining this crazy band of delegates next week. As far as I'm aware, that's all the housekeeping we need to tackle for this week's episode, so without any further ado, I'll now take you all, take delegates everywhere, to an eerily familiar scene where death hung ominously in the air. Dmitry Robotnik was tired. He was tired of answering questions with so little information. He was tired of walking aimlessly around Paris just to clear his head. He was tired of worrying about the future of Russia if it were controlled by such malignant forces as the Bolsheviks. He was tired of Woodrow Wilson's arrogant proselytizing. He was tired of having to keep bribing and bargaining his way into the important circles. He was tired of thinking about the dead, frozen face which Alexander Kerensky presented to the world after... God only knows how long he had been submerged in the River Seine. 
Most of all, though, Dmitry Robotnik was just really, really tired. A mass exodus of Russia's administrative staff in the aftermath of Kerensky's disappearance and subsequent reappearance had shattered the nerves of most of Robotnik's friends, but it also meant that he, as well as these friends, were given more work to do, in addition to that personable, diplomatic work which he already had. As sole representative of a free Russia, Robotnik was beset by visitors looking for information, yet he never seemed able to get any successful appointments with those allied VIPs. He walked now, at 11pm in the evening of the 20th of March, in the direction of the people who supposedly would be able to grant this help. In the last week, he had expended all of his energies in wresting a promise from the powers to intervene with force and intention in Red Russia. By ridding the centre of the country of its Bolshevik virus, his beloved homeland might be free to choose its own destiny. As he walked in the deserted streets of Paris, rubbish and old newspapers were blown around him with the breeze. The city seemed to be, on the one level, falling apart. It was like a representative of the people that lived in it. It was as though the city could feel their pain. It seemed to creak and groan under the anxiety which the shower of death and anguish had brought into everyone's body and mind. He had heard several stories in the last week, though he could not believe it, of a suggestion which would have brought the whole darned conference to New York. Robotnik was both sad and pleased that the proposal never made it past the suggestion stage. Imagine doing to New York what they were currently doing to Paris. It was enough to wreck one great city with their intrigues, with their lies, with their destructive plans. Who knows what manner of evil might be perpetrated in a less cultured place. The wind howled around him, and Robotnik pulled his jacket collar up. Winter was unwilling to leave the city, just as the smell of death had clung on till the last moment. These nights, there was little to do but drink with his fellow delegates, in the hope that, for a moment, the worst aspects of the situation could be forgotten. He had never expected so much death at such a civilised conference. At six foot five, he was often subject to stern or curious looks, but as matters became more acute in Paris, Robotnik almost began to feel like people were watching him because they expected him to do something terrible. The logic of the last few weeks had taught Parisians that if something awful could happen, then it would happen. And what could be more awful than a hulking six foot five bearded Russian going on a rampage? Robotnik shuddered to think of it, but the atmosphere had at least brought the delegates closer together. The old exile of the Poles had been virtually forgotten, and Pavel Lebova's indiscretions mostly forgiven. Dmitry Robotnik remembered earlier in the week how he and the Polish delegates, Pavel Lebova, Bogdan Kudzal and Paderewski, met on Wednesday night for a quiet drink. When Robotnik had innocently asked where Josef Pilsudski had gone to, Bogdan Kudzal excused himself, it transpired, to weep in solitude. Paderewski explained that Pilsudski had suffered something of a breakdown due to the stress and fear inherent in his position, and after recovering some of his faculties, he had been permitted to return home to Poland. Bognan Kudzal confessed that he did not know if his good friend would ever be the same again, and in response, Pavel Lebova proposed a toast to friends lost too soon, whereupon everyone recalled the tragic case of Frederick Bronski. Before long, what had been meant as a quiet, brief drink became an exercise in prolonged, pained expressions of sorrow and gloom. It had torn out Robotnik's heart to see an artist like Paderewski so sad. 
Not until Poland was free, Paderewski had exclaimed, would he ever play again. That had been his avowed declaration since the Great War had begun. Now though, Paderewski claimed that he felt compelled to play anyway, because it kept the one candle of light still burning in his life. Without his music, Paderewski confessed, flicking his hand for dramatic effect as he said so, he would have turned to the absinthe like the late Bronski. The next morning, on the Thursday, had only brought a hangover for Robotnik and not much else. The Poles, depressed and still somewhat isolated though they were, proved hesitant to openly side with a Russian delegate, as Robotnik had urged. With the Germans in place on the Council of Twelve, Robotnik had hoped to get a seat for White Russia as well. Failing that, the second best option was to wrest approval from the Allies for a proper concentrated campaign of destruction to be waged against the Reds. With the Bolsheviks liquidated and Lenin's head on a spike, Robotnik confessed he would feel better, but he wasn't even truly sure that that was the case. He barely recognised himself anymore, and judging by the darkness in the eyes of those Polish delegates, he was far from the only person to have been scarred by his experience here. And he had only arrived a little over a week ago. How could those that have arrived on the first day, several weeks before, still be in one piece? How, indeed, but he was about to meet some of these figures now. It was late in the evening, as they had requested. Robotnik checked his pocket watch again. A gift from his late father, presumably he was dead now, killed on his country estate by the monstrous Reds. Robotnik sighed deeply and glanced straight ahead. This was the place. Perhaps the Germans would be able to offer him some sense of perspective or comfort. At the very least, stepping inside to meet with them would take him off these haunting streets for another few hours. It was an intimidating scene for sure, and Robotnik probably would have hesitated more had he not been so numbed to the situation. He ducked his head under the doorway, and as he entered the room he saw the eyes of the Austrian Chancellor widen. Karl Renner had seen him before, but evidently he'd forgotten just how tall Robotnik was. Horton von Hotzendorf and Paul von Leto Vorbeck were less amused, focused as they were on a map laid out on the table. The room that Robotnik had just walked into was essentially the lounge of a public house, minus the patrons or bartender. A lonely glass of whiskey was cradled in the hands of the Japanese foreign minister, Baron Makino Nabuaki, who seemed content to watch and say very little as the Germans poured over the map in front of them. Gentlemen, Karl Renner said, looking over at Robotnik who was entering the room and rising to his feet as he did so, our Russian friend has arrived. With that, Horton von Hotzendorf, von Leto Vorbeck and Makino Nabuaki all rose up, with Nabuaki making a short bow before sitting back down. You are welcome, Herr Robotnik, said von Leto Vorbeck with a smile that was almost disarming. We were just talking about you, well actually, about your country. Sure enough, the map which was on the table in front of these delegates was of Russia, or more specifically, of Siberia, including the ten of Omsk, where Alexander Kolchak was preparing for a new offensive into Bolshevik territory. What do you think, Dmitri? Horton von Hotzendorf asked, in an unusual display of familiarity and friendliness. Should we support Kolchak with a direct intervention alongside him, or should we move to invade on a different front, perhaps overland through Poland? Robotnik thought carefully before adding his two cents. As he walked closer to the four men who were now seated again, Chancellor Renner handed him a cigarette. I believe our mission is relatively simple, 
Robotnik began. We must ensure that Kolchak is successful, and the best way to achieve such an end is by distracting and dividing the attentions of the Bolsheviks. I believe we should make use of the bridgehead already established in the Baltic by the brave German freedom fighters under the Freikorps banner and capture St. Petersburg. From there, with its access to the sea severed, it will be much easier to starve the Bolsheviks out. Horden von Holzendorf looked at von Leto Vorbeck, who nodded in agreement. Very good, Herr Robotnik. This was also suggested by our associates in the Council of Twelve as the best strategy for containing Bolshevism. Tell me, have you heard from Herr Lobova? I believe it was his intention last week to venture into Russia and meet with the Bolsheviks directly. I believe, General, Robotnik began, that Mr. Lobova determined to cancel or at least postpone his trip to Russia owing to these recent developments in Allied policy. I see, von Leto Vorbeck sighed. So this means the Polish delegation will not be thinning out any further then? Perhaps this is good. In the Council of Twelve we are in agreement as well. It took some time but Lloyd George has finally been brought around, as the Empire has agreed to commit a large proportion of the troops needed for the campaign. Tell him about our eastern arrangements, General, Karl Renner piped up. Von Leto Vorbeck nodded in acknowledgement. Indeed, Herr Robotnik, it seems that our diplomats have managed to rest additional agreements, above and beyond our initial expectations, to the great relief of us all. Bolshevism has apparently scared enemies and friends alike into supporting this predominantly German push into Russia. The clear expectation is that we will relinquish our control of this country to a democratic committee once we seize Moscow. Robotnik found himself intervening, almost without even realising it. Herr General, I hope I'm misunderstanding your language. Forgive me, for my German has never been sublime, but you do intend to honour these expectations, do you not? It would be a terrible tragedy indeed if my people were subjected to domination, not by a ruinous ideology such as Bolshevism, but by foreign soldiers instead. Oh, of course, von Leto Vorbeck smiled, before adding, Germany has no designs on your Russian homeland. We wish merely to prop up a stable regime there which will not menace our interests. As soon as this is arranged, with Allied support of course, we will withdraw our soldiers. I am sure you have heard, Herr Robotnik, that I was selected first to command this multinational force. Apparently, Herr Pilsudski's nerves were destroyed by recent events. Poor fellow. I imagine you are quite familiar with the Poles now. I assume they are in agreement with this strategy? They are, General, Robotnik replied, and they wish to commit a large contingent of their own to secure... Poland's borders against an attack by the Bolsheviks. They also seek guarantees that neither the new Russian regime nor the present German one will attempt to undermine Poland's sovereignty. At this point, Horton von Hotzendorf intervened. There is much indeed still to be done, Herr Robotnik. I believe that in the next week our delegates should work across the board to arrive at some solution for this Russian campaign, lest it crumbles before it gets off the ground. The Poles may still need convincing that the act of marching through portions of their territory will not be used as an opportunity to take liberties with Poland's right to exist. Perhaps a document testifying to this effect, signed by all delegates, will do the job. That would work wonders for Polish nerves, Herr von Holzendorf, Robotnik replied. I have myself been appointed as something of a go-between since, well, you know. Robotnik found his voice trailing off. Yes, my friend, Karl Renner replied. Please do accept Germany and Austria's utmost sympathies in the matter of 
Kerensky's tragic demise. We wish to assist your investigation in any way possible. Renner then added, I believe the investigation is being conducted by French police. They insist on maintaining control over the investigation, even though the white Russians are desperate to have a final say themselves. Crazy times we live in where a statesman will be killed simply for doing his job. Kerensky was at one point our enemy, Herr Robotnik, but no figure deserves to suffer such a fate as this. Robotnik nodded in agreement and finally lit his cigarette, taking a deep drag and breathing in and out several times. It was, his physician told him, how the Indians liked to relax in the evenings. So if it was good enough for them, it was good enough for him. Horton von Hotzendorf and Paul von Leto Vorbeck began muttering to one another, and Baron Makino Nabuaki suddenly stood up to speak. Gentlemen, he said in French, I leave you now for the Council of Twelve. I trust that we see eye to eye on the question of the exchanging of territory. Robotnik could feel the two Germans wince as Nabuaki left the room. Robotnik was afraid to ask, but he did anyway. Gentlemen, exactly what portions of Russia have you promised the Japanese foreign minister? Who gave you such power? Fret not, Herr Robotnik, exclaimed Horton von Holzendorf. The Japanese baron refers merely to the exchange of territory from Germany's colonial establishment on the Shangdun Peninsula to Japan. In return, Nabuaki has promised us extensive trading rights in the region, as well as in Siam. In Siam? Robotnik was as confused as he was relieved. Correct, Herr Robotnik. Japan and Siam have been working closely with one another throughout the conference, and Baron Nabuaki assured us that Prince Cherun of Siam would be persuaded to join a limited free trade agreement with Germany in the Pacific. I see, Robotnik replied. And when is this Council of Twelve meeting going to take place? Karl Renner was about to answer, before thinking better of it and glancing at his pocket watch first. His eyes widened once again. Well, Karl Renner said, we have to be there in three hours. Better get some sleep. Robotnik knew he'd get little in the way of sleep that night, or should that be morning? On his way back to the Hotel Zachary, he couldn't help but marvel at the industriousness of the German delegates. There was, in practical terms, no need to meet with him in secret at this dive in Paris in the middle of the night. Yet, such was the rarity of secrets in Paris, and certainly within the Hotel Zachary, that such actions were believed worthwhile. The more secrets one had, the more information, and thus the more leverage. Robotnik knew that he would need all the help he could get, but just as surely as the Germans did not trust the Allies yet to reveal all of their itinerary with them, Robotnik felt a shiver run down his very long spine as he walked. There was something intrinsically within him that was urging him, no matter what he did, to not trust the Germans. It was an outrage, and that was that. Italy's honour had been maligned, the name of her statesman trampled underfoot, and why? Because some two-bit diplomat supposedly had evidence of some kind of conspiracy? The whole thing was ludicrous, and yet it was another example of the kind of fiascos which Italy had to put up with on a regular basis. Still, if one positive could be drawn from the dire past week, it was that Vittorio Orlando was at last able to now relax at home for a few days, until the Allies realised that they needed their Italian friend to continue developing this new world order. Orlando reread his press release one last time. He needed it to be punchy, but also detailed and concise, so that the full extent of the injustice 
committed against Italy was clear from the beginning. Orlando felt that he was still fuming over the barbaric way in which justice was meted out in Paris. He had been forced to bail out Signor Fidel with his own money as the charges were proclaimed to have some waiting and the evidence was believed to be present. Signor Fidel, exclaimed the Allies, was a dangerous man. Orlando had never heard something so ridiculous. Fidel was as docile as his house cat, and while he may have schemed more than most, such activities were not against the law. Fidel claimed, and Orlando found that he was inclined to agree, that it was awfully convenient that such evidence materialised just at the moment when Fidel had become general secretary. These issues and more were expressed in Orlando's statement, which he hoped would soon be communicated throughout Europe. The bottom line was, Paris was no longer safe, or reasonable, or fair, and until it was made so, he did not feel willing to risk his person there. Better that he communicate via telegram instead. Perhaps this was to be the first of many communiques then. Either way, the statement was ready to be sent off. The Italian Premier's statement read, Today, Italy has taken the extraordinary step of withdrawing from the Paris Peace Conference. Recent events, the deaths of delegates from France, Canada, Poland, Hungary and Russia, have made the conference rightly security conscious. One or more killers remain on the loose. No delegate now feels safe. France's Prime Minister wisely took steps to introduce enhanced security protocols to the conference to prevent further mutilation of the peace conference. Yet delegates from the New World blithely misplace their weapons, while others openly carry sidearms, claiming their own protection trumps collective security. The French do nothing about this. To compound matters, France's Prime Minister, Monsieur Clavel, has naively politicised security arrangements, making himself police, judge and jury in all matters relating to security. While delegates understand that the conference takes place on French soil, and rightly so given Frenchmen's valiant efforts to thwart the advancing Hun, this does not give the Prime Minister the right to withhold the norms of law. The moves by the Prime Minister follow the incarceration of an Italian delegate. The clear lack of legal case against Signor Fidel has added weight to the case against the French government in overreaching itself in matters of security. Sadly, delegates at the peace conference have been duped into supporting Monsieur Clavel's spectacularly misguided proposals. Monsieur Clavel's proposals passed after, and it cannot be overstated, the arrest of the existing general secretary of the conference, one Bonifacio Fidel. Italy acted quickly to gather support for sensible amendments to the security policy, yet these efforts failed in large part due to the embassy having to split its efforts between the conference and identifying the whereabouts and status of our incarcerated delegate. The lack of a general secretary can be directly implicated in the failure to support our sensible revisions. This failure of the diplomatic process leaves Italy with no option but to lodge a formal protest over the treatment of Signor Fidel and to withdraw from the conference until it can be sure that its delegates can operate securely and free from politically driven interference from the state authorities of the French Republic. Furthermore, Italy will cooperate with any legitimate police operations to identify the unapprehended killers. The current armistice was one at too great a cost for this peace to fail on grounds that can be so easily resolved with negotiation. I urge the French government and all delegates at the conference to act in accordance with international norms of law. Italy looks forward to restarting the peace process and enshrining the hard-won gains of the blood of our sons in a binding international treaty. 
At that point, Orlando then penned in several amendments to the security protocols for the Hotel Zachary, a recently approved resolution. Orlando had to admit that he had been impressed with the progress of the delegates during the week. They had released an anti-Bolshevik declaration, which served as a proto-manifesto directed against Bolshevik Russia. A worthwhile resolution calling for the removal of land and sea mines was then passed, as was another resolution aimed at fixing the borders of Africa. Orlando confessed that he had been content with most of these, but the serious lack of security measures in the Hotel Zachary could not go ignored any longer. Suppose that ridiculous scheme which Signor Fidel had been charged with hatching had taken place. Orlando still marvelled at the far-fetched nature of the scheme, whereby Fidel would somehow arrange for the attempted assassination of the British and American leaders, only to blame their misfortune on the Bolsheviks. It was so plainly impossible that Orlando wasn't sure how anyone had the courage to imagine it, let alone accuse a man of dignity like Signor Fidel of conducting it. He was certain that those two Brits, Fitzwilliam and Tancred, were involved. Wherever a foolhardy scheme or impractical joke resided, so too did their influence. Perhaps it had been a Commonwealth scheme, engineered to discredit Italy and remove Orlando from the conference too. On one occasion, when meeting the Commonwealth delegates, he had overheard Louis Botha, the South African delegate, refer to the Italian government as a collection of pansies, and to Italy itself as all boot, no shoe. Orlando wasn't quite sure what Botha had meant in this case, or even if Botha knew what he had meant when he said it, but the tone spoke for itself. The Canadian Premier, Sir Robert Borden, had laughed at the joke, of course, a whiskey in one hand and a glass of bitters in the other. Perhaps he should start a rumour regarding the man's drinking habits? It had been the final straw when Orlando had attempted, on the Monday evening when everything had kicked off with the arrest of Signor Fidel, to meet with the Empire delegates away from the watchful eyes of Lloyd George or those two British delegates. A statement of common purpose was all Orlando had been looking for, essentially a character reference to the effect that Mr. Fidel could never have done all that he had been accused of. Yet Orlando found not men, but opportunists shamefully bandwagoning at Fidel's expense. David McKay and Arthur McCallville had been especially confrontational in that brief meeting, exclaiming their firm belief that Fidel was guilty as charged, and that he had long been the problem child of the conference. Orlando had been too exasperated to even speak. He stormed out of the meeting in a rage, loudly lambasting the very institution of the British Empire, as David McKay looked on, horrified, with his hand over his patriotic mouth, for he had never heard such a candid expression of criticism be directed at his beloved empire before. Orlando believed it was pathetic, but he was more frustrated that the meeting had produced nothing of use. Now he was reduced to waiting for the Allies to call on him, and with the Germans already taking up plenty of time, there was no reason to suspect that his presence would even be needed. If they intended to let Italy stew in her juices, though, Orlando promised himself that he could take the heat. Woodrow Wilson rubbed his temples and sighed loudly. Theodore Roosevelt had a way with words, but he also had a way with using more words than was ever necessary. The room was filled, according to House, with hostile Americans wearing friendly masks, but Wilson was doing his best to appear receptive. It was no use, plainly, to spurn all contact with his rival, as long as the passage of the League of Nations and the political support for the final treaty depended so heavily upon the public backing of the former president. It was his other lesser deputies that Wilson found he really could not stand. 
He was now six minutes late for a Council of Twelve meeting in the French Foreign Minister's apartment at the Quai d'Orsay. Roosevelt seemed to be on a mission to give each of his cronies some airtime, while Walter Cameron, the sometimes shaky but well-meaning intermediary, watched in what seemed like a contented silence. Roosevelt was doing his best to present a united Republican front to the President, and he didn't want Cameron's Wilsonian sentiments getting in the way of that. It seemed that all of his speakers had something they wished to emphasise. For Bruce Pug, it was the business interests which would be affected if America continued to maintain a presence in Europe after the peace treaty. For William Randolph Hearst, it was the negative impact which rival newspaper corporations were having on his profits, thanks to their support of Wilson's case. Hearst wanted Wilson to do something to help blunt some of the sharpness of their editorials so that Hearst would be able to carry on with no hurt feelings. Wilson resented Hearst's willingness to sling mud when he found it so hard to endure the mudslinging himself. Then there was Oliver Flanagan, who cared, it seemed, like nothing in the world the way he cared about oil. A bloviating, self-interested windbag if there ever was one. What did it matter how expensive or accessible oil was when Germans were starving and teetering on the edge of the abyss? Oh, and there was time for expressions of sympathy towards the Germans too as Joseph Zahn reminded Wilson of his German roots for the umpteenth time and proclaimed his profound wish to see America and Germany, two great nations, united in common friendship without suggesting how this might be achieved. House had been right, though. Oliver Flanagan seemed out to get his fellow Texan. That had perhaps been a touch dramatic when House had told him about Oliver Flanagan's schemes, but Flanagan was definitely no fan of that colonel. House and Wilson used to joke together that if Flanagan failed to mention Harvard or oil within three sentences, then Oliver Flanagan was probably ill. But as he watched him speak, Flanagan was the final speaker that day, Roosevelt had promised, it began to dawn on Wilson the full extent of the strain of the last few weeks. House had sold the idea of cooperation with the Republicans and with Roosevelt and company as a means to get the majority of what he wanted, with the added benefit of being able to share the burden between like-minded, useful allies. The key word being useful, as House reminded Wilson constantly how useless his candidates that he had brought with him to Paris originally had been so far. Despite the grand idea of sharing the load, though, Wilson found he was even more exhausted than he had imagined. The act of sharing the load with political animals like Roosevelt came with the constant exercise of always having to look over his shoulder, always having to double-check his intentions, always having to watch what he said. This act which he was forced to put up at all times of being contented with what had been achieved when he was in fact bitterly disappointed and so resentful towards the American political establishment and in some ways the American people as well were weights that dragged him down. Wilson had been feeling under the weather for some time but the sheer shock of being with Clemenceau at one moment of visiting the recovering premier in his room only to have to attend his funeral 48 hours later had been monumental. He had never seen or known so much death in such a short space of time. Perhaps the place, perhaps this city of Paris, really was cursed. It was distressing and terrifying all at the same time, and everyone was looking to him. Everyone wanted something. Everyone was waiting for him to slip up, to make an appointment, to explain the long and vibrant history of their armpit of a country. Any favours which were done for him were expected to be returned in double quick time, with double the impact. People were rude and self-interested and uncaring and unkind. The French press continued to pick him and his wife apart. He felt a vain throb in his forehead. 
This always happened when he thought of her coming under attack, but lately that feeling had been more and more frequent. House had told him on more than one occasion that he had looked tired lately. Was he going to make it across the finish line? He had to, otherwise Roosevelt would swoop in and claim all the credit. The credit was his. It was for Woodrow Wilson because he had been here from the beginning, while Roosevelt didn't even know what party he served. Wilson knew that he served America. He knew... Wait a minute. Was Flanagan still talking? Okay. Enough was enough. Wilson rose from his seat abruptly, so that the chair legs scraped off the oak floor. Gentlemen, I do apologise, but I'm late enough already for the Council of Twelve meeting. But, Mr. President, Oliver Flanagan pleaded, I was just about to make a very important case for Harvard leading the way in its international organisation of oil exploration. Wilson smiled. House would have been proud to see him hit two birds with one stone in the same sentence. I'm sure the case is important indeed, Mr. Flanagan, and I will eagerly wait for the next part of the tale. But for now, the matters of statehood and state death are at stake, and I really must not wait any longer. His valet was already prepared, and with a half-smile, he indicated to Wilson that he had the car running. Wilson smiled back at him, but then he kind of panicked when he realised that, after all these weeks driving him around and getting to know details about him and his family, he'd forgotten this gentleman's name. But had he ever known the gentleman's name? Wilson suddenly wasn't sure. He steadied himself, said a brief goodbye to an unimpressed Roosevelt, and opened the window of the car. He was going to need a lot of air. Maybe we got the wrong day, Fitzwilliam suggested. You're kidding me, Fitzy, Tank Red whispered. Today is the day. Today is the 22nd of March. We've been waiting for more than 35 minutes out here. Either the President is lost, or we're about to get some very bad news. Oi, don't say that. We've had enough of that already. I know, Fitzy, I know, but think about it. Does President Wilson seem a little off to you these days? I feel just fine, gentlemen, boomed a voice from a few metres away. Sir Alistair Tancred and Arthur Fitzwilliam froze. It was just their luck to have their conversation overheard by the American president. Mr. President, Fitzwilliam began, we were just... Of course, Mr. Arthur, of course, Wilson began. I understand these things happen. Do be wary, though. Some people have even bigger ears than I do. Wilson sailed past the two Brits, opening a large wooden door into Stephen Pichon's room as he did so. The door closed loudly behind him. Tancred just stared at it. Did the President of the United States just call me Mr. Arthur? Fitzwilliam asked. Did the President just make a joke? Tancred replied. Inside the room, after making his apologies, which were certainly not needed, so he was told, Wilson sat down at his chair and looked around the room. The faces had certainly changed and grown in number since everyone had first gathered with such high hopes on the 12th of January. How long ago that all seemed now. How he longed to go back to a better time like that. Mr. President, Albert Clavel grasped his hand. I do hope we can find some common ground today. We have all been talking in the last 30 minutes about our mutual and commonly held aims for this conference, and we are in agreement about the importance of the League of Nations and the necessity in destroying Bolshevism. Wilson swallowed hard. He was not a fan of this destroy Bolshevism business, 
Russians should be let sort things out for themselves. They would surely come through in the end once they realised how empty Bolshevism truly was. Still, if intervention in Russia could get everyone agreeing, then he was happy for now to sponsor it, he supposed. The Germans seemed particularly keen. Von Leto Vorbeck informed them the previous day that Germany could rely on its own freedom fighters in the Baltic. Wilson then caused a ruckus by asking whether the Baltic should not go back to Russia. Von Leto Vorbeck hinted that Germany had interests and legitimate ties to the region, and Lloyd George piped up that the Baltic peoples had national aspirations of their own. Gentlemen, René Massigli began, it is very important that we proceed with good pace through today's agenda. Many of us are tired and, no doubt, somewhat cranky, but we must push through nonetheless. Wilson smiled weakly. He wanted to be anywhere else but here. With a sense of dread, he glanced at the itinerary. The list was long and by no means straightforward. Albert Clayball could feel the colour rushing to his cheeks. Why did it always feel like the President had no time for him? It was hard enough filling Georges Clemenceau's shoes without being reminded in every interaction how insignificant you were. René Massigli looked back at him with a pained but sympathetic expression on his face. He knew that his English was never going to be good as the late Clemenceau's, but surely he hadn't given Wilson cause to take offence. He'd even mentioned the League, since that was always sure to make Wilson happy. It almost seemed as though the President was somewhere else. Maybe, Clavel dared to think, it was more than that. Wilson certainly seemed permanently tired these days, and not always able to hold on to the facts like he used to. Perhaps it was just the circumstances they were in. It had been a uniquely stressful week after all, after that business with the Italians evacuating and that Jewish Italian being arrested. Clavel kept forgetting to ask for more information about that. It was as though he could never learn enough about what was going on these days. He didn't know how Clemenceau had managed it. Then Massigli got his attention and indicated he was about to begin. It is very important that we proceed with good pace through today's agenda, his friend said. Many of us are tired and no doubt somewhat cranky, but we must push on regardless. Clayville noticed that an imitation of a smile played across Wilson's face. He sincerely hoped that the President was going to be all right. It had already been a long day, but the number of visitors and their varied nature threatened to make this day an intolerable one. The King of Siam, or Prince of Siam, whatever he was, wanted to negotiate an advantageous trade deal with Europe and had one with Japan already, or was it the other way round? Mr. Maroon's French wasn't very good. Carhu Rosnak, that infamous chain smoker, was as animated and expressive as ever. Von Leto Vorbeck made the cardinal error of mistaking Slovenia for Slovakia, and it seemed as though for a moment that this cloud of smoke was fit to rain down upon the German general for his crimes. Lloyd George tactfully drew Rosnak's attention away by asking more about the situation in Yugoslavia, which Rosnak continued to insist did not exist, even though the state of Yugoslavia plainly did. Clavel half expected Rosnak to curse Pesic's name before exiting the room, but although it seemed as though he was close to it, Rosnak didn't quite go that far. Clavel didn't have to hide his scorn for the next delegate. Charles Scheer of Alsace-Lorraine was a notorious pro-German and anti-French propagandist of the worst kind. That, at least, was what Clemenceau had said about him, but then it was hard to be neutral when the man was close to exposing the very hypocrisy of the whole conference. How could the Allies insist upon the rights of self-determination on the one hand for the Central Powers, 
only to ignore these rights when it was their turn to listen. The question reminded him of Sean T. O'Kelly's performance earlier in the year, where Dominion status for Ireland was granted. God, that had been long ago, back when Joseph Doherty had been alive. Charles Shear was short, balding and walked with a limp. He was an easy target for the butt of jokes, but he was also rational, intelligent, multilingual and incredibly sharp. He seemed to have an answer for everything, and in perfect English discussed Princeton University with Wilson, where Wilson had been the president for over a decade, and where Charles Shear had studied international law. Clavel couldn't help but feel inadequate. He only had had a technical degree from a random rural college, and he spoke English with a strong accent. Clemenceau had always said that this didn't matter, but maybe he had only said that to make Clavel feel better. Monsieur Clavel? Oh, drat, Charles Shear had been talking to him. Monsieur Scheer, I do appreciate your even-handed, dexterous approach to balancing French and German loyalties simultaneously, but I would ask that you do get to the point. After Clavel had finished saying this, there was an awkward silence. Had Scheer actually been talking to him? Certainly, Monsieur Clavel, I just asked whether you've heard from Clemenceau's son since the funeral. My son and his were quite close a few years ago. Oh, Christ, why couldn't the room just swallow him whole? The only person here who looked worse than him was Wilson, who still had that weak smile stapled onto his worn face. Venizelos was next, which at least gave Clavel something to look forward to. Venizelos talked as though he cared about you, your family, and that pet you lost as a child. He was warm, respectful, and infinitely sensitive to protocol, never once demanding or barely even requesting and Clavel knew that the charm was working. Here, Venizelos was trying again for Cyprus, but only slyly. Above all, he wanted to express his concerns regarding Albania, which he insisted was coveted by Italy, was an unnatural creation of 1913, and was too unstable to last very long. Venizelos said he regretted the Italians were not present to answer this challenge, but he insisted that a committee to determine the future of Albania should be established. A few people nodded their heads, Another committee? Lloyd George called out to Venizelos, asking him if he had thought any more about the occupation of Thrace. Venizelos insisted that Thrace was a melting pot of civilised and uncivilised peoples, but that the Greeks were of a majority. Lloyd George said he agreed, Venizelos chuckled, and Clavel suddenly felt as though he was intruding on some kind of bromance. An Arab candidate stood before them next, and curiously, Baron Nabuaki, silent up to this point, said an awful lot of words. At one point, a translator beside Nabuaki began working overtime. Was Nabuaki speaking in Japanese to this Arabian? And the Arabian was understanding him? When had this hulking warrior been to the Orient? So many questions, but Nabuaki was keeping his secrets under wraps, although Clavel realised he'd never seen the old Baron laugh so much. It was a bizarre feeling to be excluded by language from a conversation and not know the full details. Was this how Vittorio Orlando had felt? Clavel felt his stomach lurch. He had skipped lunch again that day. There had simply been no time to eat. Prince Navar Sharif wishes to remind those present that he awaits confirmation of his family's prerogative over the Arabian Peninsula and for equal trading opportunities with Britain and France. Japan, his highness believes, would be best positioned out of all the powers to pursue 
a mandate in the region, for its interests coincide with those of the Sharifi family. What had just happened? The Japanese to French translator finished his final sentence of Nabuwaki's speech in such a way that it almost sounded like the official was apologising and asking a question at the same time. Yet, nobody seemed to be paying attention. Perhaps, piped up Lloyd George, we should resume such a weighted development as this in the near future. Thank you, Prince Sharif. We will see you again in a few days. Sharif explained then in perfect English, the fifth language he had spoken fluently in this room by this point, that he could not go into the good night once more and leave his country's future up to the hands of fate. In other words, he refused to leave until something was done for Sharifi Arabia, or whatever he wanted to call it. Lloyd George, flummoxed and evidently taken back, asked Nabuwaki what he thought might be done. Nabuwaki responded that Japan would happily give up its pretensions as a mandatory power over Arabia as soon as the Shantung Peninsula was confirmed to Japan. So that was the Japanese baron's game. Wilson perked up, then sat back into his chair again when he realised he didn't have the energy to debate at this point in the day. Clavel was right there with him. After a short discussion, Sharif indicated he would be satisfied with an invitation to return to the Council of Twelve the next day. Paul Mons and his bumbling sidekick entered the room next, and Dinglebrush managed, somehow, to trip over the lip of the rug on his way into the room, causing a tremendous crash and leaving Imans mortified over what to do. He waited for Dinglebrush to get to his feet, and as he scrambled to do so, his trousers ripped all down the seam. The rip sounded so unreal, Clavel was at first certain that Dinglebrush had made the sound himself as a joke, but when the Belgian stood up, and Polymons cursed in Dutch and French in rapid succession, as though he had to let the gods of both languages know how cursed he truly felt, it was realised in the room that Dinglebrush had done it again. Gentlemen, Emons began, somehow with composure, my friend and I will take a recess and will return tomorrow with our findings. Clavel heard Massigley express his disappointment that Dinglebrush was leaving, and it was probably a genuine expression of disappointment too. On days like these, sometimes generous Dinglebrush was the only entertainment or comfort that they had. On a more sombre note, at 8.45pm when he was beyond hungry, Clavel was forced to listen to a representative from Hungary. Clavel kept the irony to himself, but even in his impatient, tired and hangry state, he couldn't help but feel impressed with this woman. Lady Eleonora Chalk, the Black Widow, as Massigli whispered to him, had a reputation which spoke for itself. Hungary, Chalk was saying, was in a state of crisis. While she wished to not blacken the reputation of her country, and while she thanked the Allies for their hard work so far, she impressed upon them with eloquence and grace the bare facts. The creeping tentacles of Bolshevism, Chalk said, were grasping at Budapest, and a communist party had infiltrated many aspects of the social democratic party of the state. The communists were not, Chalk said, strong enough to make any kind of stand, and the political opposition, as well as the militia on the streets, had been armed by the Allies in weeks past, so there was no danger of any kind of fait accompli being launched. Still, though, Chalk urged those present to think of the fate of her country when they planned an invasion of Bolshevik Russia. This act would, Chalk said, 
emboldened the more dangerous elements of the Bolsheviks in Hungary. The more desperate they were, the more likely they were to strike, and when that happened, nobody could predict what would happen next. Chuck urged the leaders to make use of Hungary as a base of operations for their intervention into Russia. That way, Lady Chuck said, the Hungarian people would see that the Allies had not abandoned them and that there was no need to resort to such Bolshevist extremism. Her proposal struck a chord, but Wilson indicated it would be up to those present to vote in the coming week. Lady Nora thanked those present for their support, alluding in particular to the timely solving of the Transylvanian problem, which had helped to ease tensions between Romanians and Magyars, at least for now. Take peace for granted in the East, Chalk concluded, and all that the Allies had worked for could so easily go up in flames in an afternoon. This Hungarian countess had made quite the impression, and she was invited back the next day to discuss Hungarian matters further. Everyone in the room took a breath as Lady Nora Chalk left. Was their list of visitors finally at an end? It seemed impossibly as though it was. Clavel looked around the room. It seemed as though only Lloyd George was as bright and wary as he had been when the meeting had started a few hours before. Clavel checked his pocket watch. Now the clock was saying 9.30pm and his stomach rumbled once more. Time truly had flown by when listening to that countess speak. The room was now evidently full of tired men. Protocols and small chat mercifully were now skipped. The delegates grunted at one another a goodbye or a good night and marched off. Standing outside, breathing in as much air as he could fit into his lungs, Clavel believed he could see the president get into his car. As soon as the president sat into his seat, Wilson appeared to fall asleep. The man was evidently finding it difficult to keep going, but just like everyone else in this troubled city, with the world resting on their shoulders, he had no choice but to carry on. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. In this installment, an awful lot has taken place, and your chairman has been positively worn out examining all your exploits. From this episode, you'll hopefully grasp that what Paris really needs right now is some kind of commission to take charge of military strategy in Russia. If an intervention is to take place, as you guys voted for, then it has to be coordinated properly, and the Bolsheviks must not be underestimated. Due to the announced intention of the Allies to intervene in proper force and with a genuine plan, Admiral Kolchak in Siberia has been emboldened, and his offensive looks to make some good progress. Unfortunately, though, William Bullitt and the people in his deputation to Russia have mysteriously disappeared. Perhaps they're being held captive by Lenin's regime, in case he might become useful as a hostage. With so much up in the air this week, I am uniquely not going to request that you vote on any proposal. I am, however, going to ask that you turn your attention towards creating this commission for the invasion of Russia, and please... For all our sakes, don't try to shoehorn the word moist into the commission's name. But just for Mr. Fidel, have some moisty, moist, 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 moist. With all that being said, dear delegates, this gets very weird sometimes, but I will now take my leave. My name is Zach. I have been your chairman. You have been a delegate, dear listener, and history friend. Perhaps you're also all three. But thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all next week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.